uh, chapter 6, starting at verse 11 through verse 1 of chapter 7. Follow along as I read that out loud. It says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, and what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Therefore, having these promises Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father God, again, we're just so grateful for this opportunity we've had to be able to worship together this morning. And Father, we believe uh, that you have brought us here um, to encourage us, uh, to challenge us, to bless us. Uh, to train and teach us. And God, we pray you would do all those things, but in it we pray that you would be blessed by our hearts, that uh, our praises and, um, and now our attention to your word would bless you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, you'll see it's kind of like two different blocks uh, there. Uh, verses 11 through 13 act as somewhat of a bridge or an interlude uh, between uh, what have been two kind of tough teachings. One we looked at uh, last Sunday, and the focus of last Sunday was the challenge uh, for all of us to live our lives in such a way that we wouldn't be the source of an offense uh, to, to those who are outside of the faith. It's, we live in such a way so that a non-Christian could not point their finger at us and say, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. And we know, we, we looked at it, the gospel itself, the truths of Scripture, uh, those will be offensive uh, to those who are uh, apart from God. I mean, if you have no relationship with God, uh, it's just quite natural and reasonable to respond to His commands by saying something like, well, what right do you have to tell me how I should live my life? Or, or what do you mean to tell me I'm sinful, not good enough to, to make it into heaven? I'm way better than those other people and, you know, all this kind of stuff that, that people say. Uh, that would be a normal way to respond. It's only when, when God actually works in a person's heart to bring a softening and an understanding in, in their heart in a, in a supernatural way that, that that person would then respond positively to the truths uh, of the gospel and of the scripture. So it's quite normal that people would take offense at the Bible. And we as Christians, we cannot um, water down those truths, uh, dilute them in some misguided attempt to, to make them more palatable or easier to take for those who are outside the faith. But at the very same time, we must make sure to live our lives in, in such a way and present those truths in, in a way so that, that we, 
by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes. We are not the cause of an offense um, to this other person. And, and as we saw last week, the only way we can do that is, is by the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the power of God working in our lives. The next subject that, that Paul is going to address is this idea of living a separated life um, for God's purpose from this world. And, and that's a teaching that I believe has been frequently misunderstood or misused or misapplied by various Christians down uh, through the ages. And we're going to get to that in a minute or two. But first, let's look at this little interlude because sandwiched in between those two hard teachings is this expression of love from the Apostle Paul's heart. Now look at verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And the, the mention of his mouth as speaking freely uh, could, could refer to either um, these teachings that he's just got done saying, uh, you know, I'm just honestly sharing these with you, or it could refer back to other expressions of love that he has given to them uh, along the way. But either way, the idea is that he is speaking to them from the, from the bottom of his heart, that he's just being honestly, openly sharing what's in his heart uh, with them. And, and then he says, our heart, and our, of course, refers not only to the Apostle Paul, but to the, the other guys that were part of the missionary team as, as they were working in Corinth. He says, our heart is opened wide to you. And that's just a, a way of saying that there was nothing being held back. Open wide means there's no, no barrier or restrictions coming in. There's no obstruction and there's no restraints going out. It's a free flow of love from them uh, to, uh, to these people. Now, if you remember from some earlier messages, if you were here, uh, there were some hard feelings on the part of many people in that congregation towards the Apostle Paul. You remember the false teachers had come in there and they had worked hard to turn that congregation away from Paul and there was many in there who had turned their back on him, which had to be a very, very hurtful and painful experience for Paul. But, but even in that hurt, he wasn't going to let that damage his love for them. In fact, look at what verse 12 says. You are not restrained by us. In other words, it's not on us. It's not our end. But you are uh, restrained in, in your own affections. It's on your end, your affections. This is what's been causing the problem. And that, that statement seems, you know, fairly easy uh, to understand, doesn't it? But, it, but it, you know, it's not necessarily always been that way. I, I was raised on the King James Version of the Bible. And I really like the King James in terms of its poetic p prose and, and the way it puts things. But sometimes it can make things harder to understand, uh, especially uh, uh, in, in certain cases like a 12-year-old kid trying to understand verse 12 here. It says this, Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now, you know, as a 12-year-old kid, I didn't know what it meant to be straightened in your own bowels, but it didn't sound like a good thing to me. And in fact, it isn't a good thing, uh, but it has nothing to do with digestive issues, I, I find out as you study this. You, you know, we speak of our emotional seat as being the heart, right? And that's why we would say things like, I love her with all my heart. But, but for the ancient Hebrews, they believed the emotional seat was your guts. 
And so they would say things like, I love you with all my bowels. Okay? Um, can you imagine making Valentine's Day cards back then, you know, this type of thing? You know, you, you, know, you can't draw a little heart. You got to draw a picture. Well, I don't, you know, whatever. You know, you've got those sweet, tender moments, you know, say, just move me in my heart. It doesn't sound the same uh, when you're talking about uh, moving your bowels. So it, it just, uh, it was a little harder to understand. But, you know, what, no matter what bar, body part you're talking about, the point is he was talking about your emotions, right? And, and he was saying that there is no problem on our end emotionally. We're, we are open to you. The, 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 the problem has been on, on their side, but it's never stopped uh, Paul from loving them, which then led to verse 13. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So when he, when he says that he's uh, speaking to them as children, he is not being condescending to them. And he's not even saying that somehow they were acting like little kids. What, what he's saying is that, that he is speaking to them as a parent w- w- would tenderly speak to a, a hurting child. And he, he's pleading with them, pleading with them to, to reciprocate, to, to love in that same way that he has been loving them. And so now with this declaration of love and this pleading for this reciprocal relationship, that's when he then moves on to this other difficult teaching, which is this idea of the Christian being separate from the world. And so if you look at the rest of the passage in verses 14 through 17, there's two main complementary teachings uh, that are given there, and they are reinforced uh, by a bunch of rhetorical questions that are asked. Then in verse 18, you get the result uh, uh, if you follow through uh, with those teachings. And then finally in verse 1 um, of chapter 7, it gives a summary appeal uh, how we should respond uh, to all of this. And, and you have to remember that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions, those were added way later on, 13th century and afterwards. So when Paul wrote this, it, it, it just uh, freely flowed together, even though it's broken up into different chapters for us. But, but let, let's take a, a look at it. So um, um, I, I mentioned before that... Uh, I think this is a teaching uh, that, that has been misunderstood and, and misused. And, and it starts, the two main teachings here, verses 17 and 14, are, are this. Verse 14 says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And, and then in verse 17, it says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And... and, and, and and people have applied that in, in different ways and, and I think clearly have misunderstood and misapplied what it means. But, but before we look at that, let's look at what the unmistakable, clear reason why these commands were given. Because we, we need to understand why they were given first, I believe. And the reason why is spelled out in those five rhetorical questions, when you answer those five rhetorical questions. And every question demands a negative answer. No, none, nothing, right? It's, it's got to be negative. So you look at this. Go back to verse 14. You get the first two questions. After it, it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Question one, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And number two, what fellowship uh, uh, has light 
with darkness? And the answer, none, right? Nothing whatsoever. Uh, Partnership is the idea of working together in agreement, in the same direction, in the same way for a common cause or purpose. And it's obvious that you can't do something in the right way and in a lawless way at the same time, right? You, You can't. Not only does it not work, it's not even possible. If it's right, it can't be lawless. If it's lawless, it can't be right. And in the same way, it's very obvious that light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Darkness is the absence of light. As soon as you have light, the darkness is gone. There's no fellowship between them. It's either one or the other. The Bible frequently uses the terms righteousness and light to refer to God's kingdom and lawlessness and darkness to refer to the kingdom of Satan. And so the next question uh, goes on to talk then about the leaders of those two kingdoms. Verse 15, the next question asks, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Now, Belial was an ancient uh, 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 name for Satan. The word literally means worthless, uh, twisted, or perverted. And so an apt description of Satan. And the question is, what, what harmony is there between Jesus and Satan? And the, and the obvious answer is none, right? They are in complete opposition to each other. Jesus is doing the work of God. Satan wants to overthrow that work. Satan is enslaving people in sin. Jesus is breaking the chains of sin. Satan desires to kill, steal, and destroy, while Jesus rescues from the domain of darkness and brings life. There is no harmony between them. And the next question then in verse 15 moves from the leaders of these two kingdoms to the followers in in those two kingdoms. It asks, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And just as in the previous uh, three questions, the expected answer is none. Now, I want you to understand, when I say that unbeliever is a follower of Satan, that doesn't mean uh, that they are necessarily out there actively pursuing devil worship or this, the, you know, this type of thing. It's just an acknowledgement that, uh, of the reality that every single person is either in one kingdom or the other. We need to make sure we know and understand people are not born into some type of neutral zone. And, and, and then get to like choose at some point which kingdom they want to be a part of. The Bible makes it clear because of sin, we are all born in Satan's kingdom. And the only way that we are taken out of that kingdom is to make a choice for God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so that means that there might be very, uh, a lot of very nice, uh, very moral Uh, maybe even religious people who are members uh, of the kingdom of Satan by virtue of the fact that they have never accepted Christ, never chosen to get out. So back to the question, what does a believer 
have in common with an unbeliever? Well, you know, this question is the one that gets a little harder for us uh, to answer because we may look around us and we may think, well, you know, I got, I got a lot of things in common with uh, uh, unbelievers. Uh, we, we might hold some of the same political views, might enjoy doing some of the same hobbies, doing them together. You might work for or work with uh, uh, unbelievers or go to school uh, with them. We, we may have the same uh, views on certain social issues like uh, gun control or how uh, is it best to help the poor or, 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 or things like that. Uh, there are just a lot of different things. You think, well, I, I think I have a lot of things in common. And we need to make sure we understand Paul's point here is not that we don't live in the same world as unbelievers and therefore might have many of the same experiences and activities and thoughts in common. What he means is that spiritually speaking, we live in two completely different realms which are polar opposites. Just as there is no harmony between Jesus Christ and Satan, there is nothing in common, spiritually speaking, between those who have given their life to Jesus Christ and have committed themselves to following Him and those who are spiritually dead and living in the world. There is nothing in common. Verse 16 gives a final rhetorical question. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, the, the people first reading this or first hearing this read to them uh, would have immediately thought when they heard that of the temple uh, sitting in Jerusalem. It was set up as the, the holy place of God, the location where people would travel to to worship God and worship Him alone. It would be an abomination uh, for anyone to think of the idea of setting up some man-made, hand-carved idol to be worshipped right alongside of the living true God in, in this temple. And in fact, that abomination had happened a couple times in the past and brought about great distress in, in Israel and broke the the heart of every true follower of God because there is no agreement. There, there's no part of worshiping God and worshiping an idol that goes together. It doesn't happen. But worshiping God changed because of Jesus Christ. It changed in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul knew that people were just starting to understand this idea and get it. And so he explained it a little further in this verse. After he asked that question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He goes, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So see, he's, he's not talking about a building or a specific location. He's talking about us. And what, what do we have in agreement if our heart has been given to Jesus Christ, if we're worshiping God, what agreement is there to worship any false idol or anything else? There's none. So now getting back to our original question, what is the reason that these command to not be bound together, to, to, to live separate as, as believers, what is the reason that was given? The reason is because like oil and water, we don't mix. We are fundamentally different. We are mutually exclusive. 
We are part of two different realms that are going in uh, opposite directions with opposite goals and, and, and have nothing in common. And so when you take time to answer those five questions that he puts out there for us, I, I think it becomes uh, uh, um, pretty clear why uh, to not be bound and, and to be separate makes sense. But now comes the all-important question, well, what exactly do those commands mean? I mean, how, how is that lived out? How is that carried out in everyday life? And, and this is the point where I believe there has been uh, some misunderstanding and mis- misapplication down through the centuries by people uh, on a spectrum, uh, on two different ends of the spectrum has happened. So on one end of the spectrum, you have had those in church history and, and all through who have decided that what this means is that we should have nothing to do with or at least as little as possible to do with those who are unbelievers. And therefore, uh, you've had uh, situations in the past and even currently now where people have separated themselves out from the world and we're going to live in our own you know, monastery, our little commune, and it's just going to be us. Uh, sounds good at times, right? But, but uh, yeah, that's, you know, we're just not going to have anything to do with them uh, because they're the enemies, they're, they're the bad guys, and, and we're going to live in our own little fortress world. And, and even now you have uh, groups of, of Christians uh, uh, doing that in the United States. You think of like an Amish or these others that, that just don't want to have anything to do with those outside of Christianity. And you know, there's, there's Christians who might not live in a commune, might not, you know, do that, but they have that same mindset. They don't want to be tainted by the world, and, and so really they have as little as possible to do with anybody in the world. All of their friends are Christian friends. Uh, they don't spend time socially with anybody except for other Christians. They, they try to do business as much as possible with just uh, 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 other Christians. Any volunteer service they do or any organization they might be involved with, those would just have to be Christian organizations. And, and uh, in their mind, uh, they're, they're coming out from, they're being separate from the world. But then there are Christians who have gone to the other end of that spectrum, and they have basically determined that there's really no practical application to this idea of, of, of separation. They would say that it's just a spiritual thing that, you know, takes place in your heart. And as long as you, uh, you know, have followed God in your heart, uh, that's really all that matters. And, and as far as, you know, anything in any interaction with everybody else, well, you know, whatever happens, happens, it's, it's fine. And, and some people ha- have claimed this position who, who uh, genuinely appear to be concerned about evangelism and reaching people for Christ, but, but they, again, they operate under what I would say is this misguided assumption that in order to reach these people, they need to be like these people. And so they do the same things as, as, as those people do, whatever they do. 
Now, I'll give you an extreme example, and, and I admit this is an extreme, unusual example, but, it, but it's a true one, and it's one that I used years ago uh, in, in an illustration here. I read an article, and I think it was in Time magazine many years ago, about a woman who worked as an exotic dancer, okay? And uh, she uh, claims, uh, someone shared Jesus Christ with her and claims to have come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And she said, you know, the people I work with, the other dancers and the patrons of this place where I work, they all need Christ, which I believe is a very true statement, right? But she determined the best way for her to reach them was to continue working as an exotic dancer. And she called herself a stripper for Christ. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. And, and, and if it isn't painfully obvious to you why it doesn't work that way, we'll get to that when we get to verse 1 of chapter, or chapter 7. But, but at this point, I just want you to say we've got those two ends of that spectrum, and I think they're both wrong. Although one end of the spectrum can be wrong and lead to sinful behavior uh, like that, and the other end is most generally just, just wrong. See, we cannot justify sin even in the name of evangelism, right? The Bible never takes the position that the ends justify the means. Reaching people for Jesus Christ or any other activity we would do as a church must be done in the right and biblical means. But at the same time, avoiding people who are sinners and who are in a need of a Savior, is also not the biblical approach. And, and Paul actually made it clear we shouldn't be avoiding uh, people like this in his first letter uh, to the Corinthian church when he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. And the, the clear implication of that verse is that we would end up associating with the immoral people of this world. What Paul was talking about, he went on to explain in that portion of the letter, was he, w he was talking about, in fact, he used the word so-called. Anybody who claims to be a Christian but then continues to live an immoral life, don't have anything to do with them. Don't associate with that person. But he understood, he knew that in order for us to carry out the Great Commission, in order for us to impact our, our world for Jesus Christ, we would need to associate with, to have interactions with, to have relationships with people who don't know Jesus Christ. Immoral, swindlers, idolaters, all of them. So what is what is being asked of us when it commands us to not be bound and to be separate? Well, I believe that separation is both a spiritual and a behavioral action. It is spiritual first and foremost because the separation that God is asking of us, what He desires from us, is a separation from this futile way of life in this world that leads to death and being separated to a relationship with Him that leads to life. 
And I think that's clearly seen in verses 17 and 18 when it says, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch with unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, God doesn't become our father. We don't become His children. We don't enter into this relationship. We don't get to have this relationship based on our works or who we hang out with or what we do or what our behavior is. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. So to come out and be separate means coming out of this world system of false religion or no religion or the religion of me, myself, and I, which I think is probably the most common religion that people live by. And to separate yourself from that and to live to God. Separation isn't just about what you don't do. It's about what you are doing, what you're going to. I'm separating myself to something, to a relationship with the living God. And as we saw earlier in this study in, in, in chapter 5 when we went through there, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, well, God gives you a new heart and makes you a brand new creation. And that act in and of itself makes you different and distinct and, and separate uh, from this world. See, as a result of that new heart, you now accept what God says to be true about you, uh, about this world, about salvation, about sin, about eternity. You belong to God, and that makes you different. And if you don't want to be different from the rest of the world, well, you can't really be a Christian because we're distinct. We're separate. We're new creations. God has called us out from that futile way of living. Now, I understand another consequence of, of this coming out and being separate is that it will change the way you relate to unbelievers. Again, going back to verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now, as, as we've already noted, this does not mean that we should avoid unbelievers or have nothing to do with them. Uh, we'll all, all are going to have, you know, the normal interactions of life uh, with non-Christians, and, and we should develop friendships with uh, those who need Christ because that presents our best opportunity to impact them for the kingdom. And, and I believe that's exactly what Jesus meant when he prayed for us in the high priestly prayer, John 17. He prayed for us and he said, they, they being those people who believe and follow him, they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. We're in the world, even though we're not of it, right? Jesus priority as he was in the world, he spent, his priority was spending time with training and teaching the 12 apostles, right? That's where he spent a bulk of his time. But he also spent a, a great deal of time hanging out with notorious sinners, often in social type settings uh, where sinners would be doing what sinners do. And he did that enough to the point where the Pharisees would point their finger at him and, and, and accuse him of being a partier. Even though Jesus did not sin in his activities. And we are called to be like Jesus. So see, being bound 
together with an unbeliever has to be something more than that, that, that casual interactions or friendship or social interactions or these types of things. And I believe the, the King James here, again, gives a good literal translation when it says, do not be unequally yoked. See, a, a yoke was a device that connected two or more animals together so that they could uh, do the hard work of, of plowing or, or pulling uh, some other thing, this type uh, of thing. And the Old Testament actually forbid, I mean, it was forbidden by law for those Old Testament Jews to yoke together an ox and a donkey. Because I mean, these are two different animals. They're different size, different strengths, different gaits. Uh, everything is different about them. And you try to yoke them together and it's going to damage the one, but it's also going to make it impossible to plow a straight furrow because you're always and forever going to be pulled off course. And in the same way, if a Christian becomes bound with an unbeliever, it will forever be pulling them off course. They, they could not accomplish what God designed them to accomplish in a partnership like that. So I believe that this idea of being bound together implies a, a stronger, a, a more formal binding relationship, such as a business partnership or a marriage. And God says it will not work to bind yourself together with an unbeliever. I mean, you're going in two separate directions. An unequally yoked uh, business partnership is going to lead to problems. Your, your ethics of how you do business will be completely different. An unequally yoked marriage is going to bring heartache. And again, going back to those five rhetorical questions, I, I think it shows us why. We're from different realms, different hearts, going in different directions. Now, not only will this idea of separation affect your relationship with unbelievers, but it will have consequences in your behavior as well. Again, looking at verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The, the promises that he's talking about there are, are from the previous verses uh, about this relational aspect with God, being welcomed by him, having this family, loving family relationship. Not, not necessarily a family relationship like you may have experienced in life, but the way it should be, the way God designed it to be. And because of those promises, we're challenged, we're called on to perfect holiness in our lives. Now, that word perfect, I think, uh, kind of throws us off, uh, but basically it means to finish or to complete, just like an artist, you know, putting the, the finishing touches on a painting, they're, they're, they're completing, they're perfecting uh, that, that painting. And God is the one who does this, this work in our hearts, but He has called us to make the choices that we have to make to cleanse our life from the entanglements that would come from being bound up with unbelievers and bring defilement into our lives. We, we have to make those choices. So, so we perfect holiness by being separated, not, not from, not what we're from, but what we're separated to, by being separated to God. God, I'm going to do things your way. I'm going to follow what you say. 
I'm going to let you lead and guide in my life. And when you're separated to God, you don't really have to worry about those other things because He's leading you where you need to be. But it also happens by making the hard choices of being separated uh, and not being bound with unbelievers. And we have to make choices to make sure that doesn't happen. That's why I always warn singles not to even date an unbeliever. And, and, he, and here's the deal. As soon as I warn them, or at least the ones that are dating unbelievers when I tell them this, they always come back at me and they say, oh, what, you mean we're not even supposed to be friends with them? And I said, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. You know, listen to what I say. Yeah, you can build a friendship, but here's the deal. Dating is meant to lead to a different kind of relationship, a marriage relationship. And you cannot be bound together with an unbeliever It's going to bring heartache into your life. So why risk your heart? We make the hard choices. But as we make the hard choices, God says, it's based on my promises. My promises of this relationship with you to strengthen you, to give you what you need, to be your father who provides for you, to make you part of a family that's also there for you. These promises, uh, these commands are not in a vacuum. They're, They're in this promise of what God's made for us. And that's why he's given it to us. So yes, may we be people who impact our community around us. but may we also be faithful to perfect holiness in the fear of God, doing those things He's called us to do. So let's pray. Father God, I I know there's just so much more that could be said about this. So much I feel is left unsaid, um, but our time is limited. So we pray that Your Spirit would complete what is lacking in this message. That you would make clear to us what we need to do as your people. We thank you, God, that you strengthen us and that you lead and guide in every area of life And that we can be a people separated to you, bound to you, and impacting this world, just as Jesus Christ was. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.